from MLNL Insurance, and you're listening to the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. Welcome back to episode number 42 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you are sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. We next turn to a Michigan Supreme Court case from 2002, People v. Let, which I'm including because it delves deeper into the manifest necessity term that we've been using. This was a 5-2 decision. 5 to two decision by the Michigan Supremes, and I'm going to briefly touch on the dissent as part of this review as well. Now, as you no doubt recall, dear listeners, that I rarely indulge in dissent reviews because, well, honestly, they're of little significance. They're the losing side explaining their losing philosophy and why they think the court's majority got it wrong. But on the rarest of rare occasions, I will review a dissent, and I'm doing so in this case because the majority took time to write out a smart rebuttal to the dissent while incorporating it into their overall opinion. And I figure if the court's majority thinks it's important enough to address a dissent in their opinion, I will share with you the dissent and the majority's rebuttal as well. Okay, so this is a really short fact pattern. We're actually going to spend more time discussing the trial court's process and proceedings than we are on the facts of the underlying case. In 1996, a taxi driver was shot and killed inside a Detroit liquor store. Defendant Lett and another man got into a verbal altercation with the taxi driver, alleging that that third man, so again, not the taxi driver and and, and not Defendant Lett, it's that third party there that was a part of this confrontation that that person had been thrown out of the taxi driver's cab by the taxi driver earlier that day. Now, defendant let admits he had a gun, but alleged he didn't shoot the driver. He merely shot his gun into the air as a way to scare and intimidate the taxi driver. Well, the medical examination of the dead taxi driver refuted defendant let's notion that he had fired it into the air. <laughs> Why? Because bullets from defendant let's gun were found inside the driver's head and chest, thus resulting in death. The trial for defendant let only took 8.5 cumulative hours, which were done and spread out over 
six days. And this is not surprising. Many trial courts only hold trial during half of a workday. This allows for other minor legal matters to still move forward without a court being bogged down exclusively with just one trial. Once defendant Lett's case went to the jury for deliberations, the jury, the jury proceeded to deliberate for four to five hours, somewhere right around there, before sending a note to the judge which read, Jason reads here, what if we can't agree, mistrial, retrial, what? Upon receiving this note, the judge assembles the jury into the courtroom with both the prosecutor and the defense attorneys all there to engage in the following conversation on the record. I received your note asking me what if you can't agree, and I have to conclude from this that this is your situation at this time. So, I'd like to ask the foreperson to identify themselves, please. Here, Your Honor. Okay, thank you. All right, I need to ask you if the jury is deadlocked. In other words, is there a disagreement as to the verdict? Yes, there is. All right. Do you believe that it is hopelessly deadlocked? The majority of us don't believe that. Don't say what you're going to say, okay? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to know what your verdict might be or how the split is or any of that. Thank you. Okay. Are you going to reach a unanimous verdict, yes or no? No, Judge. I hereby declare a mistrial. The jury is dismissed. With that, the judge dismisses the case and a new trial is held against the defendant. He was retried before a different judge with a different jury and was found guilty on both the first-degree murder and the felony firearm charge. The defense attorney, after the conviction of the defendant at the second trial, he appealed to the Michigan Court of Appeals saying that this second trial was a violation of his client's double jeopardy protection. And the Michigan Court of Appeals agreed and overruled the defendant's conviction. Overruled the defendant's conviction. As such, the prosecutor appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court, and here we are. And, oh, hey, spoiler alert, the Michigan Supreme Court rules against the defendant, thus vacating that court of appeals decision, and it reinstates the defendant's criminal conviction. Okay, so what's going on? The Michigan Supreme Court does a deep dive into the idea of what a manifest or what consists of manifest necessity. As you'll recall, manifest necessity is the idea that a mistrial is appropriate under certain circumstances. The 1824 case, 1824, so not exactly a new, fresh case. It was determined by the United States Supreme Court in a case called U.S. versus Perez, and it is the pinnacle case which held that a deadlocked jury allows for a judge to call a mistrial and retry a defendant on the criminal charge at issue. Remember, when a hung jury occurs, the defendant has neither been convicted nor acquitted of the charge. And although the judge must exercise caution in discharging a jury from their service before a verdict is reached, our Michigan Supreme Court points out manifest necessity does not require that a mistrial be necessary in the strictest sense of the term. Instead, they tell us, manifest necessity requires a high degree of of necessity. Furthermore, there are differing levels of appellate scrutiny which are applied to a judge's decision to declare a mistrial, depending on the nature of the circumstances which led to the mistrial. The court's majority goes on to tell us that there's essentially a spectrum upon which a mistrial may allow for a retrial of a defendant at one end and the prohibition of a retrial at the opposite end. For example, the extreme end of the spectrum which would prohibit a defendant's retrial on double jeopardy grounds 
would be the Dawson case, where the prosecutor goaded the defense into motioning the judge for a mistrial. Near the middle area of the spectrum would be instances where a mistrial is called because crucial evidence by the prosecutor is unavailable, or when the prosecution uses its resources to achieve an impermissible tactical advantage over the, de over the defendant. Our Michigan Supremes say that those types of circumstances would absolutely be scrutinized with deference given to a defendant. But on the other hand, they state a jury deadlock has been long considered a classic basis for a proper mistrial with no double jeopardy implications imposed against either side. The court notes that a trial judge's decision to discharge a jury must be given great deference when the judge concludes that the jury is deadlocked. So the issue for the Michigan Supreme Court is not whether they would have found manifest necessity if they were the trial judge, but whether the trial judge abused her discretion in finding manifest necessity. See, it was at the Court of Appeals level that the Court of Appeals judges inserted their own opinion on whether manifest necessity existed. They substituted the trial judge's opinion with their own opinion. And that was wrong of them to do, said the Michigan Supreme Court majority. The court majority went on to say that never has any Michigan Supreme Court required an examination of alternatives before a trial judge may declare a mistrial on the basis of a hung jury. Additionally, the Supremes point out they have never required that a judge conduct any sort of manifest necessity hearing, nor make any sort of findings on the record. And this is important. They said, The inquiry of a judge declaring a mistrial turns upon the determination whether the trial judge was entitled to conclude that the jury in fact was unable to reach a verdict. Said in layman's terms, the Michigan Supreme Court isn't going to second-guess a trial judge's belief that a jury is legitimately deadlocked over a guilty or innocent verdict. The court isn't going to make a judge jump through hoops to see if the judge can get the jury to come to a unanimous verdict. They do say in their opinion that there are deadlocked jury instructions which might have been given to the jury to get them to continue their deliberations, but they state the judge is not obligated to give those jury instructions. As such, they concluded the judge did not abuse her discretion in declaring a mistrial under the circumstances. The justices point out the jury had deliberated for at least four hours following a relatively short and not complex murder trial. Again, remember, lasted no more than eight and a half hours cumulatively. The jury had sent out several notes over the course of their deliberations, including one that appears to indicate from the discussions that they're having, uh, it might have been getting quite heated in the jury room, meaning they were starting to go at one another, the jurors were. Remember, the jury foreperson expressly stated that the jury was not going to reach a verdict. And for those reasons, the court's majority concluded that in the absence of an objection by either party, the declaration of a mistrial in the case constituted a proper exercise of judicial discretion. They found that manifest necessity for the jury's discharge indeed existed, and defendant's retrial did not constitute a violation of the defendant's Article 1, Section 15 protection against double jeopardy. Okay, now that the reasoning from the five justices who made up the court's majority opinion has been discussed, now I want to briefly address the two justices' minority dissent. 
These two justices were of the opinion that the court's majority, quote, eviscerated established precedent requiring that trial judges exert reasonable efforts to find a mistrial, end quote. And their reasoning? Well, prior Michigan Supreme Court precedents, which said, Because of the high value placed on defendants not being required to undergo the discommodity of a second trial, the declaration of a mistrial should not be made lightly, even when it is made for the protection of a defendant. As a general rule, trial judges must consider reasonable alternatives before declaring a mistrial. These two justices believed sound discretion equals or requires a thoughtful, prudent analysis, <laughs> neither of which were presented uh, as being done by the trial judge, said these two dissenters. Now, the two justices point out that the judge ordered the jury into the courtroom at 12.45 p.m., and asked the foreperson whether the jury could reach a verdict. The foreperson said no. The judge then immediately declared a mistrial, and by 12.48 p.m., so three minutes is all that had elapsed, the jury was excused and disbanded, meaning they were done, they could go home. They were done being jurors, and, and a mistrial was declared. But never did the judge consider alternatives or otherwise provide evidence that she exercised sound discretion said these Supreme Court justices. They pointed out the trial judge never polled the jurors on whether they thought they could come to a unanimous verdict. Never did she give instructions ordering further deliberations, nor did she ask the defense attorney about his thoughts on continued deliberation. These two justices also took umbrage that the judge never indicated on the record why she believed a mistrial declaration was necessary. These two justices did not believe the trial judge did enough to fully determine whether or not the jury could ever reach a unanimous verdict. And because the trial judge didn't do the aforementioned things before declaring a mistrial, these two justices believed double jeopardy should have attached to the defendant's trial and the defendant should not have been put on trial that second time. Which means if the defendant hadn't had that second trial, he wouldn't have been found guilty of the first degree murder charge. Well, the court's five-justice majority wanted an opportunity to rebut the dissent. They did not think they quote-unquote eviscerated established precedent. To the contrary, they point out that as far back as 1824, courts have not thought twice about declaring a mistrial over a hung jury and allowing for a retrial of the criminal defendant. The court's majority also takes exception to the dissent talking from both sides of its mouth. They note that the dissenters agree that no specific inquiry into alternatives to declaring a mistrial is required. But the dissidents immediately go in and state that the judge didn't pull the jurors or give a deadlock jury instruction, nor did the judge ask the defense counsel on his thoughts about declaring a mistrial due to a hung jury. <laughs> and can we all agree that those constitute alternatives to declaring a mistrial? The dissenters say no alternatives need to be explored, but then point out all of the alternatives that the judge never performed, but could have. The majority points out again that the Michigan Supreme Court has never required a trial judge to explain why it chose to declare a mistrial on the basis of a hung jury, nor to require alternatives in lieu of a mistrial. So, for those reasons, the Michigan Supreme Court held the defendant being retried for first-degree murder after a hung jury in the first instance. Well, that does not violate an Article 1, Section 15, Double Jeopardy Protection. 
In the previous case, we considered whether subsequent trials against a defendant from a hung jury violated Article 1, Section 15, Double Jeopardy Protection. And we know that that is not a violation. With this next case, we're going to discuss criminal offenses which share a similar fact pattern but result in multiple prison terms for the defendant. The case of People v. Elijah Ford, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2004, discusses just such a scenario. Here's the fact pattern. Defendant Ford broke into the victim's house and repeatedly threatened to shoot and kill the homeowner. He then forced the homeowner to go downstairs to the basement and open a safe which contains two guns and about $3,000 in cash. At trial, the defendant was convicted of and sentenced to prison for the following four crimes. Alright, first one was armed robbery, for which he was sentenced to between 15 and 40 years. 1-5 and 4-0. 15 and 40 years. Sentenced because of uh, the armed robbery conviction. Robbery from a vault was the second crime for which he received between 7 and 40, 40, 40 years. First degree home invasion is the third crime which resulted between 12 and 20 years. And lastly, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, a mandatory two-year prison term. The issue the court had to address is how the defendant can be sentenced to all these assorted prison terms, particularly the armed robbery and safe robbery, if, as our Michigan Constitution reads, a person can't be punished multiple times for the same offense. Well, here's the deal, said our Court of Appeals. The Double Jeopardy Clause is not violated if it is the legislature's intent to impose multiple punishments for violations of more than one crime during the same transaction or incident, and those assorted crimes don't have the same elements. But with this case, we're working with the idea that a defendant can be charged with and sentenced to crimes which arguably overlap. After all, the defendant used a gun to tell the victim to open up the safe and let the defendant steal the guns and money, otherwise the defendant would shoot and kill the victim. If the defendant is doing this with a gun, isn't that the textbook definition of armed robbery? How can you convict someone of both armed robbery and robbery from a vault? The answer? The same elements test. But maybe said in a different manner, think about what the legislature is looking to prevent when they created these two different crimes. The first crime, armed robbery, was intended to prevent the stealing of something, anything, from another person using a weapon. Whereas, on the other hand, the crime of robbery from a vault was intended to do just that, not have things stolen from a vault. Do you see how these two crimes were written to prohibit two different wrongs against a person? You can commit armed robbery against a person without robbing a vault. Likewise, you can rob a vault without committing armed robbery against the person. Hell, if the defendant would have broken into the, into the victim's home when the victim wasn't there and only broke into the vault to get the cash and guns, he wouldn't have been charged with armed robbery since that's a crime against the person. Is this making sense on why, even though he arguably didn't rob anything off the victim's person, like say a wallet or a watch or jewelry, he's still engaged in the crime of armed robbery, and those elements are different than the elements of robbery from a vault. One puts the person's life in danger, whereas the other simply results in theft from a vault. And if I had my druthers, I'd much rather come home to find my vault had been broken into and the contents therein stolen versus having a gun in my face a la an armed robbery. 
See how these two crimes could share a same fact pattern, but they still have different elements? In our case at hand, the court ruled that Article 1, Section 15's double jeopardy protection isn't, is not, violated if one crime is completed before the other crime takes place, even if the offenses share common elements or one constitutes maybe a lesser offense than the other. They concluded that the legislature intended to permit an offender to be convicted and sentenced for violating both of these crimes where the evidence at, at a single trial, like our defendant here, it discloses that both laws were violated during the same incident. They had different elements that a prosecutor has to prove, and one crime was committed before the other had occurred. So despite both crimes happening during the same incident, there were still two distinct crimes committed by this defendant. For those reasons, the Michigan Supreme Court upheld all the criminal convictions against the defendant because the same elements test allowed for multiple convictions due to the nature of the four different crimes which occurred that night in the defendant's home. What I really like about this next Michigan Supreme Court case, specifically a 2005 case titled People v. Davis, is in regard to the five justices who craft the majority opinion. They get into, wait for it, dual sovereignty. Ooh, sexy stuff, isn't it? Alright, before we get to the good stuff, let me share with you the fact pattern. It's brief, but you're going to immediately see why this becomes a dual sovereignty matter. Our defendant here, Mr. Javon Ramon Davis is alleged to have stolen a car in Genesee County and then driving that stolen vehicle down to the great Commonwealth of Kentucky. By the way, I, I share this in 2021 and the difference between a state and a commonwealth is in name only. States and commonwealths function in the same manner as one another, so don't let the term trip you up. In 2001, Defendant Davis is charged in Kentucky with theft of unlawful taking. He ultimately pleads guilty in Kentucky and receives probation. A year later, he is then charged in Michigan with unlawfully driving away a motor vehicle. To be clear, this is the exact same vehicle he pled guilty to stealing while in Kentucky. His attorney successfully convinces both the Michigan Trial Court judge and the Michigan Court of Appeals that being charged in Michigan for stealing this car, the exact same car uh, and the exact same charge that he was convicted of in, in Kentucky, was a violation of the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 15, Double Jeopardy Protection. By a vote of 5-2, to two, our Michigan Supreme Court overruled the decision made by the trial court, which, as you'll remember, was affirmed by the Michigan Court of Appeals by saying there couldn't be a violation of the Double Jeopardy Clause of our Michigan Constitution because the state of Michigan hadn't yet had any opportunity to bring a criminal charge against Defendant Davis. So let's get into this dual sovereignty concept because I just find it fascinating. I love our three-tier level of government. We have the federal government, which sits atop a proverbial three-layer cake. Now, this top layer is ultimately the grand poobah of decision-making. No lower level of government can trump the authority of the federal government. Therefore, if the federal government makes a certain decision, the states can't go do the opposite of what the federal government has dictated. 
And the same holds true for cities and counties in a state. If the Michigan legislature in Lansing, Michigan says that plastic bags can't be prohibited from use at grocery stores, then a city or county is now prohibited from banning plastic bags from being used for customers' groceries at the local Kroger store. And in a different fashion, the same holds true between the 50 states. Michigan has its own constitution and can set up the parameters of its government the way it sees fit. This means it also has the ability to create laws to protect the people of Michigan in the manner it believes most advantageous. Ditto all those abilities for the state of Kentucky. And in these two different states, both happen to have created a law which makes it a crime to steal cars and possess stolen property. So when defendant Davis takes the stolen car into Kentucky, he's now violated the law of possessing a stolen vehicle in the state of Kentucky. Consider this. The state of Michigan has an interest in protecting the interests of its people. Likewise, and specifically, not having cars stolen. Now, understandably, they've made that a crime. Just so you know, Kentucky also has its own interests that it wishes to protect, specifically not having stolen cars driven on the roads of Kentucky. So, understanding that each state has its own right to make the laws it believes relevant and important to the citizens of their own respective state, are you starting to understand better why dual sovereignty allows for a prosecution of the exact same crime with the exact same car in each state? The dual sovereignty doctrine is founded on the common law conception that the commission of a crime is an offense against the people and the government. When a defendant in a single action violates the peace and dignity of two states by breaking the laws of each, he has committed two distinct offenses. An offense means the transgression of a law. Consequently, when the same act transgresses the laws of two sovereigns, it cannot be truly said that the defendant has been twice punished for the same offense. But only by that one act he has committed two offenses for which each are punishable. All right, so again, that's saying you steal something in Michigan and you take it down to, to Kentucky like you did. You violated laws in both states, so you're going to be charged in both states. The United States Supreme Court has held that states are separate sovereigns with respect to the federal government because each state's power to prosecute is derived from its own inherent sovereignty, <clears throat> meaning their state constitution. It does not come from that right, does not come from the federal government. An act denounced as a crime by two sovereigns is an offense against the peace and dignity of both and may be punished by each. Finally, keep in mind that states are no less sovereign with respect to each other than they are with respect to the uh, federal government. Their powers to undertake criminal prosecutions derive from separate and independent sources of power and the authority originally belonging to them before the admission into the Union, that's preserved to the states by the Tenth Amendment through their state constitution. Our Michigan Supreme Court concludes their opinion by referencing back to the People versus Let case. That's the case, uh, as you'll recall, involving the common understanding of the people who ratified the 1963 Michigan Constitution and its Double Jeopardy Clause. The understanding is that our provision of the Double Jeopardy Clause of the Michigan Constitution should be and would be interpreted and enforced to mirror the federal Double Jeopardy Protection. 
the federal government through the United States Supreme Court has determined that entities seeking to prosecute particular crimes like Kentucky and Michigan have done can do so because they are separate sovereigns deriving their authority to punish criminals from distinct sources of power. <clears throat> Again, let me remind you, they're talking about a respective state constitution. As such, the prosecution for the defendant in Michigan for the theft of the automobile is not barred by double jeopardy simply because he was also tried for the same crime with that same car down in Kentucky. Okay, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you'd like to give me some feedback, please do so. I am at Tony Snyder on Twitter. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at TonySnyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.